Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. When it comes to managing multifamily apartments, no one will care as much about your property as you do. Today's guest has learned the hard way how to nail down this key ingredient. Kyle Jones, a multifamily entrepreneur, is building an impressive portfolio comprised of both existing apartments and ground-up projects in markets like Huntsville, Alabama, Gulfport, Mississippi, and other growing markets. So today we have a man from Houston, Texas, uh, a very interesting and burgeoning, huge international market. You know, a guy that also played, uh, I think, college baseball. So he he was an athlete as well, competitive guy. He is the president of True Point Capital. And so we have with us today on Street Smart Success, Kyle Jones. Kyle, welcome. Roger, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And so you're in Houston, interesting market. Is that where you're from? Is that where you grew up? Pretty much. I was actually born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but we moved down here when I was a a real young boy and grew up here, went to elementary through high school here, graduated, went off to play college baseball, as you mentioned. That was not here. That was about uh, 20 minutes south of Austin and then moved back here after I graduated. So what position did you play? (laughs) <laughs> so I, I ended up playing um, in the outfield. I was playing center field, uh, but growing up in high school and everything else, I played shortstop. Interesting. So shortstop to center field. And, and why did you not play infield in, in college? Uh, you know, I just I think I lost some fluidity with my fielding mechanics is the main thing. I, I like to lift weights. And so I got I gained some size going through high school to college. And but I kept my speed. And I think that's why they kept me in center field. I see. And, and so, so with the vitals, man, how, how big are you? Oh, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm just in my normal dad weight now. So I'm just under 200 pounds, six foot. So I'm not, uh, I'm not some extreme, you know, six, five, two fifty type of a person. That's just not me. <laughs> You're lean and mean. You're lean. Exactly. And mean. Yeah. And so I guess the question is, um, you know, you, you got into to real estate relatively quickly from what I can gather. So h- how did you end up determining that was the path that you were going to pursue? You know, it's funny. Um, so I can remember when my roommates and I were sitting in around, you know, not practicing and of course not doing schoolwork or, or other things when we had some TV time. Uh, one of my particular roommates and I would sit there and watch Flip This House. And so I had always been intrigued by taking a distressed property and bringing value into it through either making cosmetic rehab changes or, you know, whatever that may be. If it's, you know, in some extreme cases, they always had something that was just really complex, like maybe foundation work or something like that. So I was turned on to it pretty, pretty young. But um, after I graduated and, you know, realized that I wasn't going to play professional baseball, I needed to go get a job. And so I kind of gravitated towards what I saw my dad with, and that was high-tech software sales. So I took a little career path that was really just more IT services related type sales roles, and then eventually made my way into one of the high-tech companies with Microsoft, and then spent some time at Oracle and finished my corporate career at IBM. So I kind of bounced around for with some big companies. Um, but it was through that process too where 
there was just some events that I think happened in my life that really showed me a need to have some sort of additional stream of income, you know, and something that could actually be continuing to supplement our income while, you know, if something happened or if we needed to pay some other type of expenses, whether that's, you know, a vacation that we wanted to go on or, you know, a health expense or something, something unplanned, you know, maybe a new set of tires or something like that, you know, whatever it is, you know, not having to always tap into the income that we are making uh, between my wife and I. And so, you know, one of the specific events was when we were living in Austin, Texas at the time, just north. And I was working for Oracle, just started there. We just moved there. And, you know, to make a long story short, my wife had some health complications that really kept her from finishing out the school year as a teacher. And so she had to resign from her teaching job. And, you know, it's a happy ending. She's, she's much better now and everything else. But this was just a time when we were just trying to figure out what was going on and going through bouncing around doctor's offices and everything else. So factor that in with, you know, me starting also a new position in the sales world. And, you know, when you're, when you're young and you're just starting a new sales position, you know, your base salary is really um, not much. You're, you're more heavily compensated on the bonuses and the sales commissions and things like that. So I was just starting out. So the commissions weren't coming in yet. So a lot of financial pressure during that time in our life. And that was one of the first things that, um, that I saw where I was like, man, this is really something that I need to take some action on. And so that's kind of the time period where I started my education. And then, you know, the second event that happened that actually forced me into taking some action was actually seeing my dad get forced into early retirement and didn't have you know, plan to really retire, you know, he, he could have made it work if he really wanted to, but you know, he was still, he was around 60 years old. So he was still too early to start drawing on social security and that kind of stuff yet. So, and didn't want to tap into his 401k yet, but, um, that was one of the really more eye-opening experiences that I think also really solidified my wife's stance to say, Hey, you, Okay, you've been talking about this real estate thing for a long time. Now is time to take action because I'm watching your dad try to find a new job at 60 years old and it just took forever. And, you know, she said, I never want to be in that position. So, you know, a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, a chain of events that happened through our life, but, you know, ultimately it resulted into where we are today. Well, I'm going to hearken back. You know, I could say I was a poor student in college, but quite frankly, that would be too charitable to myself because I was actually even worse than that. (laughs) I don't know what's worse than poor. But the one book I did manage to read was Death of a Salesman. And that was like the only book I needed to read. And it's the whole, he's a salesman, like like you were, like I was. I could relate to every letter and syllable and word you just said, uh, you know, starting out, not making any dough because it's mostly commission. But the death of a salesman is this guy that's a salesman and he lives on a smile and a shoe shine and they stop smiling back and he, you know, the world turned back and he was broke basically, you know, when he was who knows what age in his 50s, 60s, old man when you're, you know, a college kid. And I'm like, yeah, that is what I do not want to be. And that's kind of all I really needed to know. So when, when you said that that's when you realized you really needed to continue with your education, I, I think your real estate education, what did that mean and what did that entail? Yeah, so I, at the time, I didn't have any money to really invest in any type of coaching program. So I had to look for the lowest cost things. And that's just really books a lot of videos on YouTube and a lot of podcasts. You know, there really wasn't a ton of podcasts 
back then. Now there's just, you know, there's a podcast for every type of thing that you would want to learn. So it's great. But back then there really wasn't that much. So it was mostly through just in, engulfing myself through books. And that was really it. So that's kind of how I, I got to learn how to, I started with flipping houses. So that's what the primarily the books that I was buying were around flipping houses and how do you analyze a property? How do you build a rehab list? And, you know, how do you understand your costs for construction and things like that? And so just curiously, what were your, the better books you read? You know, I thought one of the most well-rounded books f- specifically for flipping houses was um, just called Flip. It's a green book. It was uh, one of those Gary Keller slash Keller Williams. It was, a, it was a few different authors, but I thought that was um, probably one of the most basic yet very informative books that I found to be helpful. I see. When you started uh, flipping, Kyle, what market were you in? Were you still in Austin or were you back in Houston at this point? So we were back in in Houston. So when I eventually left Oracle and found a position at IBM, that moved us back to Houston. Got it. Okay. In, uh, in terms of flipping, did you like have a knack for the rehab process? In terms of really understanding it or, you know, being able to, you know, uh, hold a wrench or, you know, something that you were oriented to or is it something you really needed to indoctrinate yourself with the knowledge of? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely far from being the person that's going to carry a hammer. In fact, I just called my dad yesterday to come uh, fix our dishwasher. So that's the type <laughs> of so. My dad is still very handy. He's he's retired now, but he is one of the most handy people that I know. And, you know, when I was growing up, just never, never really uh, showed me anything. You know, I, I was busy throwing the tennis ball against the brick wall at our house while he was fixing things around the house. That's that's what I was much more interested in. But um, I do understand it. And and I, I did have to learn it, though. But I, you know, I can see things. I have an eye for for that type of stuff. I can see what needs to be done but I cannot actually physically go do the work. You know, I kind of know the chain of events, you know, what needs to happen when you first start the rehab and the demo process, you know, what kind of needs to come back and then the order of operations there. So I've gotten to know that just by flipping houses though. You know, the first few, I was just totally lost and just kind of, you know, at the mercy of the general contractor that I had hired. But after a few of them, I got the hang of it, you know, wrote down the steps, you know, just kind of memorized it that way. And, you know, none of the houses that we flipped were really the same. So I learned a lot in a really short amount of time. Got it. So how long did you flip houses and like, what was your entree into multifamily? You know, it really didn't take me too much time to realize that that's not what I wanted to do long term. We ended up doing about um, just under 10 houses, Uh, still have two of them today, sold everything else. But, um, and the only reason why I have the two is because I've had the same renters in there since we, since we held it. So I, and they were towards the end of my flipping path. And, and so at that time I was turned on to rental properties and I said, Hey, maybe I should actually hold on to a couple of these. And, you know, just really even in there, you know, once we got renters in there, I was like, okay, how am I going to really generate enough cash flow to replace my expenses? Cause that was my first goal, you know, replace my expenses and then, you know, be able to ultimately generate enough, uh, passive income to replace my primary income. And through that process, that really wasn't 
a ton amount of time. I mean, it was really just a matter of a few months between making that realization after the tail end of us flipping the last couple houses. And, you know, it was like one of those one month I was like, hey, I really should just keep a couple of these. And then I was like, once renters got in there, that's when I was like, hey, this is not scalable. So let me go find a multifamily deal. And what year was that? That was 2015, 2016. Got somewhere it. Somewhere in there. Yeah. And so what was your first uh, multifamily in terms of units, market, all that good stuff? So it was a 14 unit in Tulsa. So as I mentioned earlier, I, w- I was actually born there. So I, and most of my family still lives there. So, I'm, you know, we go visit quite often. So it was just a market that I was fairly familiar with. And early on, quickly realized that Houston was a hot market and there were a lot of people that were interested in Houston. So the price comparison between Houston and a market like Tulsa was um, night and day different. And I just had, by this time, I did have um, a good amount of cash sitting in the bank from some larger sales that I had made through my W-2 job at IBM. And then some, a nice little change of flipping cash, although I didn't make a ton of money flipping houses too, but, um, you know, had, had a nice reserve set up. So I was going to go in and just, you know, it was really just my wife and I, we didn't start raising capital right away. So we just bought that ourselves. And how much did you pay for it? Um, it was right around 500,000. Actually, I think it was under that. It was, uh, it was 400. Yeah. It was like 400, 420, somewhere in there. How much is that a unit ish? So it was about, I don't know, 30 K a unit or so. I think it was just under 30 K a unit is, was the actual sales price. If I remember that. And was it class C class B? It was definitely class C. Okay. <laughs> so very much a class C property. But, you know, what helped and, you know, I, I've since sold that property, but what had helped that, that property and keep it full and people paying rent was it was right on the bus route. And there was a, there was a bus stop um, at the property next door, which was like a little, um, I don't know, like a little convenience store type thing. And, but it was on a, also a very major street. So it was very busy. So it was a good location. And how did you deal with the management of it? Do you hire a, a third-party management company or? We did, yeah. We actually had to go through um, two property managers just to um, just to stay on top of it. But uh, the first guy I hired, he was a good guy. They were they started off fine, but you know he was also kind of growing his company at the time, and I think he just ultimately took on much more than he could handle, and so. I kind of got pushed to the side a little bit and we had some vacancies that were sitting out there for a while. And um, thankfully I had befriended one of the tenants who he was actually the one that um, when I toured the property initially, he came out there and he was walking me through the units and everything else. So he and I got to know each other in that hour and a half or two hours I was there on property and, um, you know, got to know him pretty well. So we kind of hit it off and, you know, we exchanged numbers after we closed the property. And so I kind of had insight into what was actually happening in the property. So there were some times where, you know, he was taking pictures of some things where, you know, things weren't necessarily getting done, but maybe, maybe, you know, I don't ever feel like I was, I was lied to by that manager, but uh, they, he was certainly not responsive when he knew things weren't getting done, but made the change and, and it worked out for us after that. And then we sold it shortly after. Did you 1031 or just pay the taxes? No. Yeah. We just paid the taxes. Um, you know, it wasn't like we made an extreme amount of money on it. So I wasn't too worried about it. I was more, um, at the time, you know, by the time I sold it, I was, I was already raising capital. And so from 
my standpoint and putting deals together and actually sponsoring these deals, there's a lot of risk capital that goes into it. And I think that's something that not a lot of people really pay attention to when they're first trying to look at, hey, maybe I could raise money to get into multifamily and buy properties. You know, depending on the size of the property, you you might need to have, you know, 50, 200 or even more if it's a larger property, um, 50, 200, 1,000 that is, to just to, you know, put the deal together, put the earnest money down, get the loan application going and pay the inspection fee and, you know, just keep rolling. So at that time, I just needed the cash. So that's why we didn't lock it up in a 1031 or anything like that. And and what was your second? And we don't we don't have to go through every deal, but I'm just it's kind of an interesting story. And it sounds like you were a quick study and figured this out. You know what was required to scale pretty darn quickly. So like where where did you go from there? Yeah, so we were also in the process of buying a 21 unit here locally in Houston, and then you know kind of around that same time, that's when I I made an, I had another realization that hey, this is not going to be scalable either. But, you know, we're on to something here. We're making money. We're generating cash flow. So that's what ultimately turned me on to raising capital and, you know, was putting that 21 unit deal together. And then also at the same time had a 56 unit deal kickoff where I had partnered up with a couple other guys who had actually raised capital before. And so it was a good decision um, at that standpoint because I really, you know, I, I knew how to operate a property, manage a property and, you know, vet a property manager by that point. But what I hadn't done is actually raise capital. So, you know, there's a lot of other logistics that go into that just from a legal standpoint and just various things like investor communications too. So it was definitely beneficial for me to give up a little bit of equity with the deal that I had to partner up. I see. And so is what they brought to that deal, the capital raising part? the partners? They, they did, you know, I had brought in a couple of investors by that point, but it was, you know, where they brought in a couple guys, I brought in a couple guys. So, you know, 56 units, it didn't really take that many guys to invest in that property. This was still at a time where, um, you know, we bought that one too. That one was like also around $30,000 a unit. So, you know, prices weren't extremely crazy yet at this point. And I'm assuming it's in Houston, but you didn't say specifically, was it in Houston? No. So that 56 unit was actually in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. You still have it? Nope. We sold that one as well. <laughs> How long did you have it? Uh, it, was, it was just under three years. I understand. So tell me this, um, in terms of where, well, first of all, how many properties do you hold now and where are they? Oh man. Um, I don't even have the, I don't have a count of how many properties, um, you know, on it's around 13 or 14, I believe. And they're all, you know, hundred units plus at this point. So we've got, and we've got a pretty wide range, you know, we've got a couple that are in that hundred right at around hundred units. And then we're, um, we've also got a 300 unit. So, and then a few in between there as well. In what markets are they in? Are you, you know, is it basically Texas plus um, markets within a few 500 miles of there? Or is it, you know, I guess what's the thinking? Yeah, no. So um, they are in Texas. I've got a couple in Texas and then I've also got a couple in Alabama and then a couple in Mississippi. Interesting. And so what markets in Alabama and Mississippi? So Huntsville, Alabama, very... Uh, very active there. We've got, got a, almost a thousand units there right now. And then we're actually building another 230 units as we speak with a ground up project. 
Um, and then in Gulf, uh, Gulfport, Mississippi is the other market. We've got uh, two properties there, just under 200 each. Those are, those are both right, right around um, 200, uh, excuse me, 100 units. You know, I keep reading that Huntsville is just like super highly educated and growing like crazy. You know, I keep reading that time and again. So I, I guess that that's probably been a great market for you, it sounds like. Very much so. We got in at a very, very good time um, because now it's, you know, a lot of people are seeing those same articles. So you know, <laughs> pricing is continuing to, to go up. But thankfully, we got in there early. So we we were able to build some early rapport with a lot of the broker community and everything else. So, um, you know, it was good timing on our part. In terms of level, is is the stuff that you're doing or have done in Huntsville, obviously not the ground up, is that been class C, class B? I mean, what I guess what's your overall strategy and, and how, how are you kind of sizing deals up? Yeah, I think it um, is mostly class B and C for sure. Um, you know, we're, we're slowly working our way in to be more with class B or like a higher class C, depending on the location of the property. And, you know, that's really just a testament to what we've seen in our portfolio with the success that we've continued to have even during the pandemic. So, you know, a lot of people are you know changing their strategies and, and rightfully so they should be, you know, we should be adaptable uh, based on what we just learned in 2020 and, and frankly still learning. But, you know, we've been able to mitigate our risk and, and, you know, the collections have continued to stay strong, um, even to this point. So our strategy hasn't changed too much. I mean, other than we are, you know, trying to focus more in the class B range. And like I said, the, at a minimum, it would be a, a high class C. Why more B and higher class C? So, I mean, there's a couple things. I mean, uh, by just by nature, you might get a little bit higher class of residents that are living on the property, you know, that, that can afford a little bit higher rents. And so not all the time, but I would say sometimes <laughs> with the, with, along with that, you just, you have less issues with just like residents causing problems on the property or, you know, just leaving a bunch of trash. Although I, you know, I've seen hoarders. I know there's a bunch of hoarders that live in even A-class properties too. So you can't avoid trash, but I think a bigger part of it is just the vintage of the buildings. You know, a lot of the older buildings just have more issues, you know, have more plumbing issues and just more maintenance issues, electrical issues and things like that. And no matter where the property is or what type of resident class you have, that is what is going to affect your bottom line if you can't get a handle on your expenses and your maintenance issues. Oh, well, sounds like valuable lessons learned. Yes. Still, still learning, you know, <laughs> but- <laughs> You will never stop learning. I mean, uh, if you're doing it right. And so I guess just uh, existentially uh, in the years you've been doing this from the management side of it, what would you say are the biggest challenges to third party management out of town? Well, I think the biggest challenge is that nobody is really going to care as much about the property as you do. And it's really just about finding somebody that can cater to you the best is how I'm looking at it. You know, we've gone through our fair share of property managers, even even from those days in Tulsa. You know, we've changed managers in different markets and things like that. And now we've we've kind of picked our pony and we think we're on to something here. But it it took us a while to get there. And even still, even though this particular manager is is a great manager and they 
you know, first and foremost, they manage the bottom line very well. They, they know how to take care of their people more than anything else. And that's really what ultimately I care about. You know, if I've got to ask for something a couple times to get it, but they're taking care of the property, I'm okay with that. And, you know, that's, so that's just like one specific example where, you know, sometimes I've got to ask for things multiple times, but I know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm have direct access to, you know, the owner of the, the management company. And then, you know, I know every team member that's working in on my property underneath that person. So, you know, you just got to make sure that you find somebody that you're, you're aligned with ultimately, because if there's, if you're out of alignment, you're going to be in disarray with the property and, and, you know, no amount of, you know, money that you spend in the property is going to do any justice if you can't manage the budget or manage expenses. So Kyle, in terms of the, like the property managers that you've utilized, you've been doing some heavier value add stuff. Do they, have they typically had in-house construction people or are they hiring third parties and managing that? So it's been a mix of both. So I'll say this, my previous managers have never had anybody who understands construction as much as my current manager does. And that's one reason why I, I love working with the current manager that I have, because they, they actually developed properties and they still develop, you know, like uh, commercial retail stuff and some single tenant type stuff. But they, you know, several years ago, they were also, you know, they, they built over 50 multifamily properties in the Southeast. So they're very experienced with managing budgets and managing construction and really just looking at a building, especially older buildings and, and knowing what is an issue and what can maybe, you know, you can just kind of replace over time or something like that. That has been invaluable for me. And that's just honestly something that you can't really, you know, you can't train necessarily. You just you've got to, you know, call around and try to find that person, I guess. I, I really don't know. You know, we just kind of lucked out into it. But um, generally we, we like to use our maintenance techs where we can. And then if, you know, like in one case, we've got a property that when we took over, there was, um, in one of the buildings, all eight units were down and there were some other down units as well. So the maintenance tech is working on the ones that are the lighter lift. And then we're hiring a general contractor. Um, well, really they're just kind of subbing it on our own because I'm, my manager knows how to GC. So, you know, they've hired the subs themselves to bring those other eight units back online. Interesting stuff for sure. So you were, you were early to the table on Huntsville, which makes you look like an absolute genius. Um, <laughs> what, what are, as you see things, what are like emerging markets where there's still opportunity where everything's not being, you know, where, where you don't have people crawling all over each other for every deal that comes on the market, but still a good market. Well, you want to know that I think for me, it's, it is still Huntsville. And the reason is because there's been, this has happened to me multiple times where I haven't even been the highest bidder on the property, but because of my experience and rapport in the market, I have been able to acquire those assets and, you know, I'm competitive. I'm not just like low balling, but you know, so that's one thing. And I'm, and I'm an easy buyer, you know, I have only retraded a handful of times, not even a handful. I've, I think I've on, I've only retraded maybe once or twice. And those were for, for very justified and specific items that, you know, just we were not made aware of ahead of time. But there's also been other issues where we find, you know, we'll, we'll find some surprises too. And we just kind of look at it and it's like, Hey, this is actually going to cost, you know, 15, $20,000. And, 
you know, it sounds like a lot of money, but when you're spending five million or more on the property, $20,000, I mean, just, just suck it up and raise the capital, raise the additional capital that you need or rework your budget and take care of it. Like that is not a reason to retrade. So that's one of the biggest things that I think has been my advantage is just getting in there early and building the rapport. And then also, you know, just being an easy buyer. So that's why I say that's still a market where it's emerging for me. And we're actually, you know, we've kind of also look at, we've got another 25 acres under contract that we're going to, that we're going to build on later as well, which is, you know, ground up construction is the ultimate value add. So we're looking forward to that as well. You know, sounds like a, Sounds like a solid strategy and a, and a good market to do it. You know, it's it's probably there's always risk in um, Class B in Huntsville. What are cap rates roughly right now? You know, it's it's because it, the market there is um, just so in flux right now. With you know, it's kind of the timing thing. There have been properties even in Class B that have traded under five, and there's been some that have traded still you know, high fives or even, you know, sixes. I mean, we've, we've actually managed to buy a couple sixes lately. So it's really just depends on, you know, the, probably the property itself and then, you know, just the timing of the market. But it does feel like it's kind of the wild west right now where comps are. Very, very interesting. Sounds like you've kind of like nailed down a very interesting geographic niche and I think uh, my guess would be the wind is at your back because I, I've actually been, even before I started being interested in, in real estate, I've been reading about Huntsville for a long time um, just because there's, I, it's not aerospace. What's the big industry or is it aerospace? What's the industry? Well, you have the Redstone Arsenal, which is the old army post. That's where they're also, um, you know, the FBI is going to make their second headquarters there. Um, you've got Toyota Mazda plant that's coming in, that's coming online. They're actively hiring now. Um, but most recent thing was the Air Force announced that they're, you know, deeming that market, uh, Redstone Arsenal is where it's going to be housed as the space command. Got it. Okay. So I, I wasn't too far off, off the mark. So let's talk about Houston because Houston doesn't seem to have the velocity, for lack of a better word. It's not as sexy, or also for lack of a better word, as per se, certainly Austin or Dallas. But yet, you know, there's a huge economy there. And so are there, and you're from there, you, you live there, you, you know it inevitably, incredibly well. Are there not great pockets of opportunity in certain submarkets, or is it things are just more attractive in other markets? No. Um, so actually we have, we have since, you know, been buying here actively, um, but it, it really didn't start coming until more recently and into 2020, it kind of helped expedite that. So, you know, we have three properties here, but yeah, I think Houston is not as dependent on oil as, as what it may seem to be, you know, in the eighties and even early nineties and everything else, you know, even into arguably the early 2000s, you know, Houston was pretty dependent on the oil industry and, and still largely is. But I think, you know, where you're going to see effects with that in like the real estate world, for example, is the A-class properties. You know, the, the folks that are, you generally see a lot of the young engineer types, they're living in, you know, urban Houston area. And so when they, when they do get laid off or something like that, they're generally moving out to the suburbs 
Um, the suburbs are growing too, just with young families and everything else. I mean, every suburb around Houston is massively growing. I mean, I'm, I'm actually in the suburb of Katy and Katy actually has arguably one of the best school districts in the entire nation. You know, that's not made up. You can, you, you can Google that and fact check that, but you know, it's the suburbs are, are really expanding. We definitely won't be doing any ground up in much of Houston. It's still going to be acquisition reposition type stuff, but you know, there are definitely opportunities here. And, you know, there are definitely parts of even urban Houston that were traditionally fairly dangerous. You know, you've got all the wards that kind of, if you're familiar with Houston, got all the wards around Houston, but they're slowly, you know, expanding new development and everything else within these areas too. So new high rises, new restaurants and just trendy little areas to hang out and everything else. And so it's, it's cleaning up the, you know, the midtown and the urban area just right around downtown as well. So lots of opportunities here. Why wouldn't you do ground up? Well, I I think it's one thing. I won't say I'll never do ground up here. I would, I would actually love the opportunity to, it's just, there are so many units coming online. I mean, literally in, in Katy, um, by, you know, not far from my house, you know, driving around. I, I noticed this uh, a few weeks back where probably within a one mile radius, I'm not even exaggerating when I say this, there was probably at least 10 to 12 new construction multifamily properties going up all at the same time right there. So, you know, I don't have the the data at my at my fingertips, but I know that at one point in the last, you know, six, seven months that, you know, the, the most of the suburbs were being overbuilt at the time right now, you know, they had too much supply coming online is the absorption rate was, was not very good. So there are a couple suburbs where I think there is opportunity there that I do remember from that report that I was looking at, but, you know, so that's, that's really the main reason why it, it's not for lack of you know, not wanting to be here. It's just really just, uh, it's hard to get investors on board if you're, especially for our ground up construction deal, you know, it's something that most of our investors, it was new to see that come from us when we launched that deal in the Huntsville area. And so you're kind of having to train them a little bit on to rethink, hey, this is a ground up. This is, you know, this is why we're doing it. This is the opportunity here versus, and and even still, they were, you know, a lot of questions coming about uh, on the absorption rate and everything else. And still a lot of people didn't invest because they thought um, Huntsville was being overbuilt at the time. But um, the data that we saw compared, you know, apples to apples to Houston, there's more opportunity there versus, you know, what's in the Houston area right now. It's always that kind of balancing act, right? Because when a market gets hot and the employers are moving in, you know, then people start building and you just don't want to be the last one to the dance. And so then there's timing issues. And, you know, I guess that's one of the big risks with construction is, you know, you're anticipating something that's going to happen 18 to you know, I don't know, 24 months down the road. And so very interesting. And so when you say we, you refer to we, do you have employees? Are you putting together different partnerships per deal or like, what does that look like for you? Um, So I do actually have a couple of employees that work for me full time. And then I also do have pretty much just one other partner and, and we have other supplemental partners that come in and help us sign on the loans when you know, we're taking over a larger property, you know, like for example, that 300 unit property, um, we needed uh, an extra set of key principles to help us qualify for the loan. 
sounds like a tightly run ship and um, you know what you're doing and uh, very manageable. You know, you're building a reputation. Well, you already have a reputation that just keeps getting better. V- very good. And, you know, I don't know if anybody's told you this, but you have a great voice for radio. <laughs> you know, there, there. I have heard that from uh, a few people only because uh, one, one other gentleman actually said that randomly um when we were i don't know it was a, it was a, just a guy an investor actually that we were talking to <laughs> and uh talking about a specific property about investing in but then i had um i do actually have a podcast out there we're kind of revamping that up and i've had a a few of my buddies after they go back and listen to it they're like hey that's actually uh <laughs> you know it's it sounds good so i appreciate that thanks for the feedback it's a very rich kind of uh, bourbon, very velvety kind of voice. Um, and, you know, I, I'm talking to people all the time because of what I do. So, uh, you know, <laughs> well, thank uh, you. Thank you. I accept that compliment for sure. Well, well, Kyle, how would one get a hold of you if he or she were interested in doing so? Well, they can certainly check us out on my website. It's just truepointcap.com. Dot com. It's all spelled the normal way, truepointcap.com. And then I've got uh, my email. You know, I'm pretty easily accessible. So that's kjones at truepointcap.com. And if you shoot me an email or, you know, there's some forms that you can fill out or contact us type thing on my website too. And we see all that too, but I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Well, I have very uh, much enjoyed the uh, time we have together. And, um, you know, hey, you're going to continue killing it. Um, I could just tell. Well, thank you very much, Roger. The pleasure is mine. Yep. And uh, thanks for being patient uh, with with my faux pas last week. For the audience's sake, I screwed our time up and you've been a a total (laughs) gentleman about that, which I appreciate. No problem. Like uh, you've got to be adaptable in this business so I can roll with the punches. All right. I will talk to you soon, Kyle. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. Bye.